Well, if you remember, uh, we are involved in a series of messages on the life of Christ, and it's going to actually take us months and months and months uh, to complete this as we kind of harmonize the Gospels and look at the major events in Christ's life. Uh, we started a little before Christmas with the birth of Christ. Remember, we looked at it both practically, the birth, and theologically, what it means to us in our salvation. If you think about it, a, a natural progression from after you look at the birth of Christ would be to now look at the life of Christ as he was growing up. But if we did that, you'd soon find out that Scripture is pretty, pretty silent on Christ's life as he grew up. We know that his family, Joseph and Mary, fled to Nazareth when Christ was about two years old, a result of Herod you know, ordering all the boys to, uh, two years old and under you know, to be killed. That's when the, the kings, the wise men, had appeared in Bethlehem to Christ. We have one incident where Christ is 12 years old and he went with his parents to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Accidentally, he is left there as they kind of caravan back up into Galilee and he is left behind only for his parents to go back and finally find him in the temple sitting amongst the teachers teaching them. Then we have a verse like Luke chapter 2, verse 52. It says, And Jesus grew in wisdom, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. So we know that you know, he was growing just like you know, normal kids grow, so he was a toddler, an adolescent, and kind of worked his way up through that. We know that Joseph and Mary had other children after Jesus. They would have been his half-brothers and half-sisters. So I think it's safe to say that he grew up in a fairly normal, you know, Jewish home. But that's really about it. That's all we really have about the life of Christ growing up. Have you ever wondered why Scripture is so silent on, on that portion of Christ's life? I mean, wouldn't we like to know what kind of a child Christ was? I mean, did he cry as a baby? You know, did he fuss? Did he go through the terrible twos? You say, well, probably not because he was sinlessly perfect, so he never had those terrible twos. Did he get along with his brothers and sisters? Did his parents have to, ever have to correct him or give him a time out, discipline him? I mean, what kind of a teenager was he? Was he picked on? You know, we know he's sinlessly perfect. He's the son of God. And so, you know, was he picked on? Was he accepted? And then you wonder how he would react. There have been some letters that were written well after the life of Christ that tried to fill in these blanks and talked. I think there's things about Christ, you know, taking mud and blowing on it and turning it into a, a bird. Or I think he zapped some children who teased him once. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but th those are all just hypothetical type of things. We can only imagine what it was like for the God-man to grow up in a family. And you know what? I think that's probably the way God wants it. He wants to leave it to our imagination. I mean, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are inspired biographies of Christ's life and his ministry. Most biographies that you would read about a person describe the person's lifestyle, his home, his life, his relationships, even the description of how they look. But God has left that all out because this isn't about a lifestyle. 
this book, the Gospels, are all about a life plan. God's plan for redemption. What God has done to redeem a fallen man who's away from him to redeem them back to himself. And the whole Old Testament is kind of pointing to that moment, the, the life of Jesus Christ, the redemptive plan of God through his son Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament is pointing to that. I mean, in Genesis, man's sin separated us, and we saw man's need to be saved, a man's need for a redeemer, um, you know, that, that we, ha- we have to have that relationship restored. A nation, we see in the Old Testament, a nation is raised up of Israel, whom God would work through for all mankind to see as he was interacting with this nation, giving them laws and directions and protecting them and blessing them, correcting them when they were wrong. Nations were supposed to be able to see and understand God through this relationship. But man's sin corrupted that relationship. That, that nation fell. The nation would cry, well, just tell us what to do, God. Just tell us what to do. And so God gave them priests, gave them the law and the priesthood, you know, so they would know about holiness and righteousness. But once again, man's sin corrupted the priesthood. It manipulated the law. God gave a sacrificial system. It was set up so man might have a picture of their need for redemption, that the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. But that, those sacrifices we see in the Old Testament, by the time we get to Christ, they become so mundane to them, ritualistic. God gave them judges who would work to bring the people back to him. He gave them prophets who became God's mouthpiece to the people. But they were ignored. They were tortured. They were murdered. Israel cried for a king. I mean, give us a human ruler with absolute power over us to lead us, just to, you know, to make us do what's right. And so God responded. God gave them a king. But absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it too fell into sin. The whole Old Testament is a picture of man's effort to restore a broken relationship with their God that happened at the fall of man. We can do this, but sin makes us unable to do this. Enter a new covenant. Enter Jesus Christ. Christ is God's finally saying, you cannot, I cannot, but God can. The Gospels are God's revealing of that plan of how he is going to redeem a people to himself. And that's the point of what God has revealed to us. If he had told us what Christ's favorite color was, what food he liked to eat, what his hobbies were, what style of music he listened to, we'd fumble around in all of those details and we'd forget the real purpose for Christ coming to earth. To save the people from our sin, to save you, to save me from our sin. So we have a lot. We have a lot on Christ's birth, not much on his upbringing. But now when Christ is about 30 years old, Scripture once again reveals the plan of God through Christ's life. And I first want to consider today, I want to consider the times in which Christ began his ministry. Remember we talked about a little last week that Christ chose to come in some 2,000 years ago. He, sold, he chose a culture, he, a, a history to step into. He could have done it any time, but he chose that. So there's a reason. It's important, the culture in which Christ uh, steps into. 
And to do that, we're going to look at some verses, unusual verses for us, in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And excuse me uh, murdering some of these names here. But it says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Licinius was tetrarch of Albilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we read verses like this, and man, they seem like big names. What do they have to do with us? Seemingly unimportant. They don't really touch us. We don't know who they are. We don't understand this. But folks, they really do give us a wealth of information in understanding the culture that, that Christ was stepping into. For instance, each of these names and rulers have been verified by archaeological finds. Every single one of them, every, every single one, are genuine men. Archaeology, secular archaeology has verified these men. So, so right from the outskirts, you know, this, this Bible isn't mythology. These are real people, real events. Christ is stepping into real history here. And they give us a very specific time frame in which Christ would begin his ministry. Again, from, from archaeology, we know that Pilate was the prefect of Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 37. We know that Herod Antipas, Antipas was deposed of in A.D. 39. His brother Philip died five years earlier in A.D. 34. Caiaphas was high priest from A.D. 18 until A.D. 37. And so if you put just those names together in the times and things we know from archaeology, they give us an 11-year window from A.D. 26 to A.D. 37 at which Christ stepped in, you know, stepped forward with his, his adult ministry. Now the first name listed there, Tiberius Caesar, helps us become even more specific about when the time he came. Fifteen years, it says, now fifteen years in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So fifteen years after he began his reign, that would put John the Baptist, remember it says, you know, that's when John the Baptist at the very end, he stepped forward, he began his preaching. That would put his ministry around A.D. 29 is when John the Baptist began preaching. And soon after John the Baptist began preaching, then would step forward Jesus Christ. Well, these names and titles, they're confusing because we don't understand their government, and again, they're not names that we're familiar with. But the breakdown in power isn't much different than what we're experiencing today. Uh, Rome wasn't a democracy, um, but they, they did have one ruler, which was the House of Herod, and then Rome was broken down into different regions. And they would have in each region a smaller ruler. And each of these men represent a particular office. And this is how they dated things. I mean, we're looking at it, and we look back at A.D. 27 or A.D. 35 or A.D. You know, 153. We look at that, but these datings came after these men. They didn't have any way to date it. So they dated things by men's rules. And if you put them all together, you get an idea. It would kind of be like you, us saying... In the second year of Joe Biden, 
when John Cassius was governor of Ohio and Larry Marvel was pastor of Cloney Baptist Church. If you put those three things together, you can zero in on the time frame that they'd be talking about if, if you, we didn't have that numerical system that we do. The scripture also tells us who the world power was. All these names tell us that Rome was in power. So the Israelites, God's people, were under the Roman rule. Um, you know, again, history now helps me understand Christ's times because we know a lot about the Roman rule. We know about what was important to them, what wasn't important to them, you know, all of those things. We know that Rome tolerated all beliefs, but the prevailing mood of, the, of actual Rome and the nation was atheism. We know that slavery abounded. There was indescribable cruelty. The sacredness of marriage had almost disappeared during the Roman Empire, replaced by promiscuity. The Roman Empire, by this time that we're looking at, it was rotting. It was in an immoral cesspool that would ultimately lead to the fall of the Roman Empire. The Israelites, however, God's chosen people, in the midst of living in this culture, they had been able to keep their, their monotheistic religion, in other words, one God, even though there were all these false gods bombarding them and, and you know, uh, that they were trying to get them to follow, they kept their monotheistic religion, that there was one God. Um, there was a lot of religiosity amongst the Jews, you know, so that one God that they had, there was a lot of orthodoxy, a lot of formulism. There wasn't a lot of spirit involved in their interaction with their God. Their externals had been multiplied, but the spirit had been quenched. Verse 2 reveals to us much about Israel for us. It says in verse 2, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now that's interesting. It talks about two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Well, you know, we know that there is only supposed to be one high priest at a time. Again, so this tells us a little bit about culture. It identifies two high priests when there only should be one. Annas, we know, he is the rightful descendant to the priesthood. But after nine years, the Roman government removed him from that office and put one of his sons in place. They didn't like their, their, his sons either. And so the, the office was given to Annas, who was actually Caiaphas's son-in-law. So he wasn't even a direct descendant out of, you know, to, the, to, the, to the priesthood. So it's given to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was Rome's puppet. He's put in office because Rome knew he could control him. And he was, he was corrupt, and he was very much connected to the Roman government. Caiaphas held the civil power, but the people still recognized Annas as the rightful high priest. So he held a lot of influence, you know, during the time upon the nation. Annas was was, you know, he was, he was heavy in legalism, he was heavy in ritualism, but he's better than Caiaphas here. So why is this important? Well, let's take note of it. When Christ is brought and interrogated before the Pharisees, remember the Pharisees want to take him to the high priest. What high priest do they take him to? They, do they take him to Annas? No. They take him to Caiaphas, who had an in with Pontius Pilate. 
And he would have no problem with fixing a phony trial and having a quick execution. On the other hand, when you get to the book of Acts, and when the disciples are arrested and they brought before a high priest for preaching the name of Jesus, Annas is there. And he's present. He threatens them a lot, even has them flogged, but he won't go as far as to execute them if they didn't deserve it. So we look at these and we say, well, the bottom line is, what does this all have to do with us? You know, what does their culture mean to us today? Well, what it means is that Christ lived in a culture and at a time that was not so different from our age. Technology has changed, but sin has not changed. We have the same sensuality, we have pride, we have the same greed, we have the same corruption in our political system. They have always flourished in man's sinful world. Legalism, ritualistic, dead orthodoxy, that places the focus on man's actions and not God's actions, it's always been a danger in religion. And we see it all over America today. So kind of in looking at all of this information, I kind of asked myself, what would I choose as a starting point? If I was to step into history in in, in a messed up society with all the sin and the greed and and the sensuality, everything with the corruption in the political system, the orthodoxy, the, the lack of heart, where would you start? Where would Jesus start? Well, I couldn't really come up with an answer. I mean, you know, humanly you think, oh, I'll perform a great miracle and get everybody's attention. Or maybe the best way is just to, you know, confront sin head on. You know, focus on the religious community. You know, start there. I asked that question. I asked of myself, but then I asked it of Jesus Christ. Where did he start? And the answer that I got, that God gave me from his word, is, is authenticity. Jesus started with authenticity, authenticating who he was, his genuineness. It started in the choosing of Christ's earthly parents. You read the, you read the Gospels, and, and two of the Gospels have these long genealogies that list the names leading all up to Mary and then leading to Joseph. And, 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 and honestly, we kind of skim over those names, but man, they're important because they let us know that he was born of the line of David that he is authentic, that he he fulfilled that. Every prophecy of the Old Testament concerning Messiah's birth was met. The time, the place, the events, hundreds of prophecies are all met in the person of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, eight days after Christ's birth, it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 22 through 24, it says, and when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses was completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord, that every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In other words, I mean, if you think about it, Christ didn't need a sacrifice. Christ had no sin But even still, he kept the law. In Malachi chapter 3, it said that there would be one preceding Christ who would prepare the people for the Messiah's coming. 
We see that fulfilled in John the Baptist. You know, in Luke chapter 3, he, he introduces Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, here's how he is introduced. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by John. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. I mean, Christ, even, you know, early in his ministry, even as a child, he's making sure that he's authentic. He is fulfilling everything that the, the law presented. And then interesting, after these verses, after his baptism by John, if you go into chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Then Jesus, right after his baptism, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by, by the, the devil. Christ enters a 40-day intense temptation by Satan. I mean, he has fulfilled all the prophecies. He has kept the law. He has kept righteousness. And now he is standing up to Satan to be tempted in all manners like we are, yet without sin. He'll walk amongst mankind, healing, doing miracles, teaching them. But how many times do we note that after a healing early in his ministry, he told them not, not to tell anybody about it. Matter of fact, his disciples, you know, he, he, he was, you know, pretty much keeping it on the hush-hush. You know, demons, after he cast them out, they would proclaim his, his, him as the Son of God. And he would tell them to be quiet. Why? I mean, if he's going to be a public figure, if he's going to be the Messiah, if he was there for the people, what is he trying to do of, of pushing off, revealing who he is? And the answer is authenticity. Authenticity. He first authenticated who he was. He first demonstrated all manners that he was the Messiah, the Savior. Last week we looked at a verse in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. It says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. So everything on the life of Christ, everything that we have in the Gospels, is all to authenticate, for God to say, this is my Son, this is the Savior, this is the Messiah, make no doubt. He fulfilled the prophecies, he fulfilled the laws, he, he took on Satan without sin. This is the Messiah. And we're supposed to see all of this. The prophecies, his victory over sins, the miracles, the healings. And we're supposed to come to the same conclusion that his disciples did when Christ asked them, you know, when everybody was leaving him, are you going to leave? Remember what he said to them? They, they said to him, they said, if not you, then who? Who's going to be more authentic? Who, who can fulfill more than everything that you have done? And that's the same conclusion that God wants us to come through as we read the Word of God. He authenticates who He is. Christ didn't just tell them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He proved it. He first proved to them that He is the way, that He is the truth, and that He is the life. Now, we say, why is this so important? Okay, this is all great. 
this is all good information. What does it mean to me? Well, if you think about it, if Christ lived in a similar philosophical and immoral society like we do today, then what he chose to do to start his ministry will be important for us to follow, for us to seek, if we're going to impact the culture that we're going to live in. The word for us, if we want to impact our community, we want to impact our neighbors, our family, the word is authenticity. We don't use that word much. We, we call it our testimony. Our testimony as individuals, my Christian life, our testimony as a church. When people look at Colonial Baptist Church, what, did, what do they think? What is, what is the church known for? I mean, we can sit around all day and we can bemoan the depravity of our society. You know, we can do it until we're blue in the face. We can talk about pornography and abortion and drugs and selfishness and pride. We can see sin all around us. You can look at the men and the women maybe at your workplace and, and, and know the heartache because of their need that they have for Jesus Christ. But if they have not seen in you an authenticity to your Christianity, you have absolutely no platform for which to stand on and speak to them. You see, Christ stepped into a society that was so screwed up. They didn't know right from wrong. Their priorities were so out of, out of focus, out of joint. Religion was phony. Nothing more than a faith of convenience. And Christ is sending you and I. He's sending this church into the exact same moral climate in which Christ stepped into. The same confusion... We have the same pain, the same hopelessness, the same despair is all around us in our society and in our life. We have churches on every street corner, but the church has lost its relevancy to society because the authenticity of the claim that we make is not backed up by the reality of our life and how we live. And until we do that, we don't have a leg to stand on. We want to change society. You know, we start with ourselves. For us being authentic, us being genuine, real Christians. Christ came first in the power of the word. He knew the word. He lived it. Christ didn't work outside the word of God. He didn't try the latest newfangled things to try to get attention or try to get his voice heard. God's word. You know, he didn't work outside of that word. Meticulously, he fulfilled every prophecy of his coming. When tempted with sin, remember what he did? He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The word of God. John says that that word is the light into darkness. So the bottom line is, we need to know God's word. And if we don't know it like we should, you know, if you're a Christian, regardless of maybe you haven't had, you know, the, the training, the equipping, you haven't been involved in church, you haven't plugged in, whatever it be, if you don't know the Word of God, then you need to be doing something that will change that. Get involved in a Bible study, whether a personal Bible study, a group Bible study. Go to Sunday school, adult Bible fellowship. We have our 
times of devotions. We have tons of study books. And the word is the truth to combat sin. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power. It's not our trickery. It's not our cleverness. It is the gospel, the word of God. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, God promises, he says, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. It is important. There is no way that we are going to detach ourselves from the word of God as a church and as individuals and have any truly lasting impact on the society around us. That's why I'm so thankful you know, to hear the last few weeks talk about those packets that uh, Chris was talking about and our kids and memorizing you know, in, in the kids club and in, in, in the children's church. This is tremendously important to instill God's word, to plant God's word in our hearts. And that's what we need to do. We need to do it as adults. Say, well, I wasn't saved till I was older, and it's harder for me. Okay, so it's harder. It still needs to be done. Christ came in the, the power of the word. It all begins with knowing the word of God. You know, is, is it real in your life? Are you living the word of God? John chapter 1 said the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And we have seen, we have seen. Christ didn't just know the word, but he lived the word. And God doesn't want us just to go through the academics of knowing the word. He wants us to live the word, to put in practice in our life. It should, it should change your work environment. It should change how you drive in your car. It should change your family life. It should change your relationship with your spouse or with your parents. It should change how you go to work. It should change your community, how you interact with your community. He doesn't want it just to be academics. He wants it to be lived. And not just the do's and don'ts. You know, we, we tend to focus on the do's and don'ts. But there is a heart and there is a spirit that God's word talks about, a genuineness of a claim and a connection that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Jesus Christ is my Savior. It's not about choosing a particular lifestyle you know, that I think is right. It's about choosing the person of Jesus Christ and having that relationship. Living the Word, it involves faith. It involves sacrifice. It involves giving of ourselves to God. And we can make all sorts of claims about God. We can talk about heaven until we're blue in the face. We can talk about forgiveness and purpose and then, a, and then live life for ourselves. And we've lost all platforms. The world has to see it in our life. The world has to see a difference. They need to see an authenticity to our faith. And we need to make sure that the, the difference others see is that right standard. It's not about our life being easy. Well, God must bless them because their life is easy. Nice family, good job, nice home. They're a good person. Folks, that's the American dream. That's not God's dream. All those things, they can be part of your life, praise God, but that's not the end goal. 
Authenticity is something that stands up when the pressure is on in your life, when things aren't going well. Are you an authentic Christian when it's not popular to be a Christian? Authenticity in Christ is, is moved you know, from the head to the heart, that he is our Savior, and that when we see things around us, we see him as Christ sees him, the need, the pain, and our hearts breaks as Christ's hearts, not just to feel bad for the situation, but to move, to get involved. The word became flesh, it says. The word didn't become a philosophy. It didn't become a way of life. It, was, it wasn't a concept. It was a life. It was a person, and, and that's what Christianity is. No person has impacted his generation in the world more than Jesus Christ has. Authenticity was his platform. Let me ask you, what's your platform? How are you impacting the people around you? Why or why not might they follow you because you're following Jesus Christ? Father, I ask you to help us to answer that question personally in our lives. Help us to look honestly and allow your word to be that mirror. God, as it is, it's not for condemnation, but Lord, to correct us and to, to move us closer to you. And I pray that you would just help that, Father. First, personally and individually, each one here who knows you as their Lord and Savior. Father, regardless of what rut we might be stuck in, Father, your, your word your spirit is stronger than any of those things. Father, help us in whatever area it is that you are bringing to our mind right now. And Father, if there is anyone here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, God, I pray that they would dig into your word, even as they hear these messages, and see who you were. See that you were real in everything, Father, that you did was pointing to our redemption and your love for us your love for them, to die on the cross for their sins, and our need to turn to God, to turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. God, if anyone here needs to do that, Lord, that this might be the day of their salvation, to simply not just agree with that statement, but to open up our heart and accept you as our Lord and Savior. Father, I thank you for using these broken vessels for using a church that is made up of, of people with all kinds of struggles, all kinds of problems, all kinds of issues, Lord. But Father, as we focus upon you, you use us for your honor and glory. Help us to continue to follow that. Thank you. In thy son's name we pray. Amen.